This morning's text is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. And I'll be reading verses 13 through 18. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. God's purpose in this text for us this morning and his purpose for the ministry of his Holy Spirit right here among us right now, I believe, is to impress very powerfully, life-changingly upon your minds and your hearts, his desire for you to have strong encouragement. God means to minister by the word and the spirit this morning, strong encouragement into this congregation and into your heart, and into your family. That's very clear to me from this text. I do not doubt that he appointed this text months ago and appointed your presence here this morning in ways that you perhaps did not yourself plan, that you might be strongly encouraged. Verses 17 and 18 are the main point of the text. I told Rod not to read verses 19 and 20 because as I prepared this text, I was so um, overwhelmed by the truth of what we're going to look at this morning. There was no way I could do verses 19 and 20 also in one sermon, so that's going to stand by itself next Sunday. And in fact, the image for next Sunday of the upside-down anchor that goes up instead of down the anchor in heaven is one I just couldn't tack on the end. I was clicking along here. I had about 10,000 bites. I said, that's the end of the sermon. i got to include two more verses. So I almost ended by saying, and we have a great hope, and it's like an anchor in heaven into the Holy of Holies, hooked around Jesus. And I said, that's a sermon. I can't just end with that. So I'm not going to talk about that this morning. That's next week. So we're stopping at verse 18, and these two verses, 17 and 18, are the main point. Now listen. In the same way, God desiring. Now just stop and let that sink in, because that's God's heart for you this morning. If you ask, what does God desire? What does God will? What is God's purpose for me this morning? There it is. So let's finish it now and keep your ears open In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. Why? In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. There it is. That's the content of his desire for you. 
That's why I believe that God's purpose for this sermon and the reason His Holy Spirit is showing up here this morning is to do that. He's going to do this text in your life. That's His will. His desire is that you might have, what does it say? Strong encouragement. I love that phrase. Strong encouragement. Who? We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. So we're going to argue in a minute that everybody who does that qualifies for this strong encouragement. Are you a refuge seeker this morning? Are you willing to flee to God as a refuge? That's not a big qualification, folks. There's no muscles in that. This is childlike desperation for refuge that qualifies you for strong encouragement this morning. So that's that's what he's up to in this text. He is meaning for you to arrive here this morning, gather at the Lord's table, sit under the preaching of the word, experience the coming down of the Holy Spirit, and walk out of here with a new, deep, strong encouragement in God that will carry you forward for the rest of your life. Now, look at the word that begins verse 13 here at the beginning of this paragraph. In our version in the text, it's for or because, which shows that this paragraph is a support or an argument for what went just before, verses 11 and 12. That's three weeks ago we talked about that, so we better get it fresh. Let's read verses 11 and 12 again. We desire each one of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope. There's that same concern that this writer has. Strong encouragement, full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish. Remember these warnings over and over and over again in this book? Don't be sluggish. Don't drift. Don't be slack. That you may not be sluggish, but, the alternative to sluggishness, be imitators of those who through faith, that's the fleeing for refuge, faith and patience inherit the promises. So the the concern just before this paragraph begins in verse 13 is that we might positively be full of faith and patience. The reason patience is there because life is hard. Life is hard. Sons die on motorcycles, cancer, lost jobs, wrenchings in marriages. Life is hard. And so it says faith and patience. It's a long, hard battle. And then the warning is, but don't become sluggish. Don't drift back and think that you can live the Christian life in neutral. Neutral means backward, folks. And backward far enough is the waterfall and destruction. you got to keep it in gear. Hebrews is written to help us keep faith in gear. This text and this sermon is written and spoken to help you keep faith in gear. Because only then do you stay in hope and in vital union with Christ. Now why? Why is he so concerned that we not become sluggish? And he tells us in verse 12, 
Because it's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for, according to chapter 11, verse 1. And drifting is the opposite. It's deadly. I sat there yesterday thinking about this, and I thought, I have seen times in my life, and I thank God they have only been minor seasons, but I have seen enough to know that the the hope of glory and the preciousness of forgiveness and the wonder of escape from hell and the triumph over Satan and the prospect of eternal pleasures at God's right hand, all of that can start slowly, subtly, quietly to feel boring, uninteresting. And what really feels exciting is football or computer games. Or vacations. Or new music. That's what really feels so good and so satisfying. And and the deep, wonderful, awesome, glorious realities of the Bible are suddenly fading and we're drifting back. And this book is written to say, fight that with all your might. By faith. Flee to God for refuge. Be diligent to lay hold on the hope set before you. That's what this text is about. This text is written to give you strong encouragement to lay hold on a hope. Because you know what the world is doing every day? You turn on the TV this afternoon if you do that. It has one message in those ads. Hope in me. Hope in these clever instant replays. Hope in what this car will do for your image. Hope in what fellowship this beer will create on the high mountain. Just hope, hope in us. And it is very strong, very powerful. The average American I read sees about 3,000 hope-giving words from the world a day. And this book is a flag being waved. Hey, folks, this is dangerous. This is really dangerous. Because if you drift into those hopes, instead of fleeing to God for his hope, you could become like Esau. Remember three weeks ago? Esau. What happened? Sold his birthright for a bowl of cereal. That's Whatever the TV offers, just sold his birthright for a bowl of cereal. And when it came time to get right, he could still cry over the penalty of sin, but he couldn't cry anymore about lost preciousness of righteousness. And therefore, he was dead and gone. He could not repent. God will save anybody who repents. But there is a drifting that comes to a point into callousness and hardness of spiritual things where you can still be scared of hell, but you can't love righteousness anymore. And that's a terrifying place to be because it's too late. So many people I have heard say, I'll repent and get right with God after I've sown my oats or done my thing. And they fail to realize that Salvation is not by decision. 
A lot of misleading talk about decision. Salvation is by rebirth. The awakening of a new creature in Christ whose main characteristic is that he loves Christ. And you can't turn that on by decision. That's a work of almighty God which results in a decision. But if you think you can plan that after a life of deadening sin, you are so naive. And you are playing with fire. Drifting in sin and taking the hopes of the world instead of day by day fleeing to Christ for hope is suicide. And this book is written to prevent suicide and I'm preaching to prevent suicide. And you are in small groups and we small group leaders gather tonight to help know how to help our people not commit the suicide of drifting. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. That's what small groups are all about. Sermons won't keep you from hell alone. we got to exhort each other daily. This book is all about rescue from drifting and diligent hope giving. And so now let's look at how he does it. How does he do it? He begins in verse 13 on common ground, 13 and 14. He begins in the Old Testament with his readers. And I believe that if you've been listening on Wednesday night, as we've been talking about the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of the scriptures, you'll remember that Jesus Christ in dozens and dozens of ways and places put his stamp of authority on the Old Testament. And therefore, we who trust Christ, who've been brought to Christ as our King and our Lord and our truth, believe the Old Testament for Christ's sake. If anybody asks you, why do you believe the Old Testament? You say, because Christ, my King, taught me to submit myself to the Old Testament. So I stand with this writer and these listeners on the same common ground. As they go back to Genesis 22 here, I'm going to go with them. And I invite you to come too. You don't need to look it up, but I'll read it to you. There was an oath and a promise made in Genesis 22, 16, and 17 that this writer read and set this whole paragraph in motion. It goes like this. Genesis 22:16. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you, Abraham, have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Isaac. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. Now, this writer of the book of Hebrews is probably the most masterful interpreter of the Old Testament in all the New Testament. He read that and he set himself to praying, thinking, and opening himself up to the inspiration of God. And he saw two things. He saw promise and he saw swearing or an oath. And that's what he's going to talk about in this paragraph to undergird our assurance. The promise to Abraham that he would be blessed and the oath by myself I have sworn declares the Lord. Now, here's the first question we need to ask ourselves before we talk about the promise and the oath. Why are we Gentiles? Most of us in this room probably are Gentiles. There may be a few ethnic Jews. Why are we Gentiles 
in this promise so that we are to get hope from a promise made to Abraham and his seed or his descendants. Let me give you four reasons. Number one, back in Genesis 17, five chapters earlier, God said to Abraham this, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. In other words, already in the Old Testament context, the fatherhood of Abraham is conceived of a fatherhood not merely of ethnic Israel, but of a multitude of nations. I will bless you and you shall be a blessing to all the nations. How? You will become their father. So in some sense, the nations can in some way become descendants of the Jew, Abraham, and the promise made to him. So the doors open, at least, from the Old Testament that we Gentiles, 2,000 years, 4,000 years later, could qualify. Argument number two. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19, we saw, you remember, that many who were physical descendants of Abraham nevertheless did not enter into the rest that had been promised, but fell, rejected in the wilderness. And the reason given was they did not have faith. It says they were not able to enter God's rest because of unbelief. So now we hear the other side of the coin. Namely, the first side was some nations... Or people in all nations can become descendants of Abraham. And now we read, some Jews are not descendants of Abraham. Meaning they do not become heirs of the promise. They fall. Why? Unbelief. And so now the possibility opens up to us. Aha. So it seems like it is not Abraham's ethnicity that guarantees the promise. It is Abraham's faith that guarantees the promise. And it may be that people in all the nations who not share his ethnicity, but share his faith, become the children of Abraham. Argument number three points in that direction. In Genesis 22, when God made the promise to Abraham that he would bless him and bless his descendants and make them triumphant over all their enemies... That promise was given squarely on the basis of Abraham's faith in offering up Isaac, his son. It says, because you have done this, I will bless you. And I swear by myself that I will bless you. So now we know that the covenant confirmed with Abraham was rooted in not his ethnicity, but his Faith expressing itself in offering up his son Isaac. And now it becomes clear that perhaps those who have that kind of faith and are willing to sacrifice everything in their lives and flee to God for refuge might also inherit this covenant and this promise. One more argument, number four. Right here in chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse 12. How is it that we inherit the promises? It is by faith and patience that we inherit the promises. And how is it in verse 18 that we become heirs of the promise? 
fleeing to God for refuge, that we who may have strong encouragement, who who have fled for refuge. So my conclusion is this, and then I'll just read it to you right out of Paul's words in Romans. My conclusion is that in the Old Testament, the promise was made to Abraham, but it was also made clear in the context that he would become the father of many nations and that they would be the heirs of this promise. And it was clear that some Jews did not inherit the promise because they were unbelieving. And therefore, what qualifies you for the promise is not ethnicity of any kind, but faith of Abraham's kind. Now, let me read it to you out of Romans 4.16. It says, the promise is certain to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, Jew and Gentile. So if you come to this text this morning and you have some misgiving, okay, I hear God willing to encourage someone. Heirs of the promise. But the promise was made to Abraham and his descendants. And I'm a, an American Gentile. Do not exclude yourself anymore. If you are fleeing to God for refuge. If you are sharing in the faith of Abraham. If you're looking to the seed, the descendant, namely Jesus Christ. And united to him by faith. So that all the promises of Abraham are yes in Christ. And now for you. Because you are in Christ. Then you can see yourself in this text. And as we finish this, you can sit there saying, this is mine. This is mine. And that's what God wants you to hear this morning. That's what he wants you to experience. A saying, this is not just out there for somebody else. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for heroic Christians. This is for desperate fleers for refuge. There's the qualification in verse 18. If you flee for refuge to God... Away from sin and all of its possible refuges and enticements. Then this text is for your encouragement. So back to the promise and the oath. He read these verses. Genesis 22, 16 and 17. This writer did. And he saw two things. First, he saw a promise. And then he saw an oath. Let's take the promise first. The promise was, it's right here in verse 14 in the text, 614. I will surely bless you. And I believe that he wants us to hear that word blessing with the full power of God behind it in the fullest possible way you can understand it. I will accept you. I will forgive you. I will love you. I will cleanse you. I will glorify you. I will bring you through death. I will put you in eternity. I will put you at my right hand. I will put you on my throne. I will let you have untold pleasures at my right hand and forevermore, I will bless you like that. So there's the promise, and it's awesome. That promise alone ought to send us from this room glad in God, ready to live for Him, hopeful about the future. But you know what? That is not the main thing this writer saw when he read Genesis 22, 16 and 17. That is not the main excitement in this writer's heart. Something else got his juices flowing. And it was the swearing of God. Now, if I had known where I was going to end this text or this sermon, I would not have titled it what I entitled it in the bulletin. What did I entitle it? I said, uh, Strong Encouragement Anchored in Heaven. Anchored in Heaven is next Sunday's text. 
This Sunday's text, I now have titled, I have retyped it, When Does God Swear? That's the title of this text. Now that is a very important question for your encouragement. Genesis 22:16 says, "By myself I have sworn," declares the Lord, "I will surely bless you." So you got an oath and you got a promise. Those are the two things that are unchangeable. Two things that reveal God's will for your encouragement. This morning. Now, why did he add an oath? That's your question. Why an oath? Why not a promise? God doesn't have to swear. I mean, God's word is true. He doesn't need to swear. Put his hand on a Bible. So help me God. I will speak the truth. But verse 17, let's look at the end of verse 17 here in our text. He interposed, he inserted, he added an oath. Why? Here's the answer, verse 18. In order that, by two, not one, not just a promise, but by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. He added an oath so that this morning... November 10, 1996, Bethlehem Baptist Church, you might be mightily encouraged. Not just a little bit encouraged or 90% encouraged, but 110% strong encouragement. So I was in the car driving to Pizza Hut yesterday with Barnabas. It was Barnabas' turn to go to Pizza Hut. And as we arrived at 35W, I... You know, I break right into my sermon preparation to go to do these Pizza Hut dates with my boys. So I'm I'm just churning with this stuff. And I drive up and put stop at the red light and say, Barnabas, isn't it great that our king wants all of his subjects to be encouraged and hopeful? I mean, how many kings are there like that in the world who mainly want their people to feel hope? Oh, he just kind of gave me a stare. <laughs> and then we talked about it. And I said, I can imagine a God. It's easy to imagine a God. In fact, most people, I fear, serve this imaginary God. I can imagine a God who looks at his subjects and says, just get out there and do what I tell you to do and stop worrying about your future. I have authority. Get out there and do what's right because it's right and stop thinking about whether you're secure or not in your tomorrows. Get out there and do what I tell you to do and stop thinking about your piddly future. There's a lot of people who worship a God like that. He's got a big sword and a long whip. Just do it. Do it. Just come on. Do, do, do. And I've got a God who spends most of his energy trying to make me encouraged and hopeful. So, here's another one. I told Abraham I was going to tell this story. And I didn't do it in the first service because I never have time to do what I want to do there. You get you get the whole thing. <laughs> Noel is working with Talitha. She's one year and one month old. All right? And Noel's trying to teach her to tell how old she is. 
this is ridiculous. <laughs> and she's got her doing it. How old are you, Talitha? And she goes, how old are you? You go try her after the service. She'll do it for you. Walk up to her and say, how old are you? But Abraham came down to the table and Noel said, ask her how old she is. So Abraham says, how old are you? She didn't do a thing. And I said to him, you know, a lot of people have a God like that. The only God they can imagine is commands that turn them off, shut them down, and close them out. I said, Abraham, there's no hope in that. You didn't deliver any encouragement at all. Come on, do it right. So he says, okay, Tabitha, how old are you? And she goes, God, God has commands. Sure, he's a commanding God. Sure, he has a will for you to do. But he speaks it in such a way that you just want to go, tell me the next thing to do. Just go ahead. Make my day. Give me commands. That's the way God is. That's, that's my God in this text. He is after our encouragement. And out of that encouragement flows everything he wants us to do. So let's just look at the oath here quickly and we'll be... Will be done. By myself I have sworn. Now look at verse 16. He get this writer gets all excited about this. He he crawls inside Genesis Moses' mind, and he says, verse 16: For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So he's analyzing why did God swear, and what. Encouragement can I get out of God's swearing? And he says, now when you swear, you don't swear by mosquitoes. You don't say, by mosquito, I didn't do it. You don't say that. Why? Because mosquitoes aren't worth anything. And if they are cursed, it doesn't matter. You say, by my mother's grave, I did not take your purse. What does that mean? By my mother's grave. You mean... I love my mother so much that the last thing I'd ever do is bring reproach upon her memory. So I'm telling you the truth. So you reach for something valuable. You reach for something big and high. And so when you go and give a deposition, they make you put a hand on a Bible or raise your right hand and say, so help me, God, or something like that. Why? Because they know that if they can get you to commit yourself to some value that you have, doesn't work much in our culture anymore, but we're still trying. Get some value that you have. You you won't lie. Okay, so God's going to swear. Now that puts him in an awkward position. Who's he going to swear by? It's got to be something big. And he said, well, I could swear by the moon and the sun. They're big. Or I could swear by the people of Israel, the apple of my eye. Or I could swear by... All the angels in heaven and Gabriel and Michael. I could say, by Gabriel and God, by Michael, I will bless you. I swear. But he doesn't. Why? Because he wants you to have the strongest possible encouragement. So what does he swear by? You see it? Verse 13. Let's read it. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater He swore by himself. He said, 
I swear by God I will bless you. By God I will bless you. May God cease to be God if I don't bless you. May God be a liar if I don't bless you. May God be condemned if I don't bless you. May God be shamed if I don't bless you. But when you hear God talking like that, you kind of, wow. Why is he talking like that? And the answer is for your encouragement. Not only did he promise, but he took an oath. And not only did he take an oath, he took an oath on the highest possible value. God will not bless you when God ceases to be God. God will not bless you when God is a liar, when God is shamed, when God is cursed. May God be cursed before he does not bless his people. That's what he's saying. And that's why I was... Blown away at the corner of Washington Avenue and 35W. Isn't it amazing to have a God like this who mainly is reaching to the heavens to bring down encouragement? The thing that's written here in dark print in the close of my notes is, I mean for you to have as much confidence in me, says God, as it is possible to have. Otherwise, he would have sworn by something less than God. He swore by God. He took God as an oath upon the lips of God in order that you might have strong encouragement. Not by one thing, but by two things. To flee to him for refuge. So I close with an appeal. And the, the appeal is rooted right here in verse 18. I appeal to you all. To flee to God for refuge. This is not hard to do. It isn't getting out of your seat, in fact. It's something that happens right here spiritually in your heart. Fleeing to God for refuge is a spiritual act of childlikeness. I could tell you stories about Talitha there, too. When Sable barks a little extra loud or something and... (laughs) This is what children do. They don't do it to earn anything. They don't do it to merit anything. They do it because mommy and daddy are reliable. And we haven't even taken an oath. And God takes an oath by God to bless you. And therefore, I invite you to come to him and to flee to him and to enjoy him and to turn away from all those substitute hopes that are being held out, luring you in. Let's pray. Father, oh God, oh God, help us not to drift. There's some drifters in the room right now. They're so cavalier about the word and about prayer and about worship and about witness and about you and your value and your preciousness about forgiveness and heaven and hell and the cross and all the glorious spiritual realities of the word, they're just cavalier about them. They give you two or three seconds of thought out of a day, and they're in so much danger. Father, I pray that this wonderful, winsome, beckoning message of encouragement would break in. 
Would you just lay hold on people and awaken them to the glory that we have a God who loves to encourage us, who has stretched himself by swearing and then by swearing by himself. There is nothing higher that we might have strong encouragement to flee to him for refuge and hope. I'll be at the front here. There'll be some prayer teams here. And if there's some obstacle in the way for your hoping in God, we'd just love to pray with you and fight with you that God would remove that for you. God did some really powerful things in the first service in that regard, and you may want to linger and and receive that too. Um, When I pray here as we're done, um, we'll see if they've got a number for us on freeing the future, and then we'll, we'll dismiss. Father, go with us now. And let us feel this strong encouragement. Grant your people to meditate on these things until there rises up in our hearts a great, wonderful strength and hope to carry us through the day and bring us to glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Paul, you got one here. Let's see how close we are. (laughs) Thank you. All right. $952,000, that means 148 yet to go. Now, some of you uh, haven't paid up yet, and uh, maybe there are some who are struggling, and so let's do it this week. Our aim is to, uh, we've got appointments set to pay off these deeds. (laughs) They are set, and we're planning to celebrate on the 24th. We really got to move. So 148 more. When we had eight on the day we made the pledges, God brought in another 300. He can bring in this 148. Let's just pray one more time that he'd do it. Father, we just lift up this little card here. And with your strong encouragement, that you're going to bless us. You've blessed us in the past. And this text says that with an oath, you have committed yourself to bless us. And we just ask now that the blessing would include in the next week 148000 to finish the debt on this building and make us free. In Jesus' name, amen.